Hey Artemis, it's Ashley Chance. We're taking a break over the holidays and we want to revisit the most popular series we've ever recorded, a deep dive into ungulate research with the scientists at the Monteith shop. You've written to us about this series. You love the scientists. We love the scientists. There's the animals, mule deer, bighorn, moose. And I think this series was such a hit because it showed us so much about the science of some of these icons of the big game world. The more we know about these species, the richer our sporting journey. Without further ado, I'll let Marsha take it from here. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Marsha Brownlee. It's hunting season, and Artemis is out in the field, but we have pre-recorded a series of episodes with scientists from the Monteith Shop. It's a wildlife research group in Wyoming that's home to some of the most in-depth ungulate research in the West and to innovative thinkers on the front lines of wildlife science. The work they do is critical to ensuring conservation projects, policy, and plans are based on how wildlife are actually interacting with the landscape and grounded in scientific research. Plus, as hunters intensely curious about the behaviors of the animals we pursue and dedicated to their health and vitality, we find this research deeply fascinating, and we know you will too. Thank you for joining us for the Monteith Shop series, Chasing Ungulate Tales. Hey everybody, welcome to the Artemis Podcast special series, Chasing Ungulate Tales with Monteith Shop. I'm your host, Marsha Brownlee, and I am joined by our co-host, Jess Johnson. Hi, Jess. Hey, Marsha. How are you today? I'm doing pretty great. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, I'm, you know, whenever this podcast comes out, we'll know that today was the closing day of rifle elk season here in uh, Wyoming. So I'm stressing, but good. (laughs) (laughs) Closing day of elk season. Today is? No, this week. Well, tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. Tomorrow. Well, and I think um, if everything goes according to plan, this podcast is actually scheduled to air on Thanksgiving. Ooh. Think that well, far ahead. I'm sitting down to a meal of elk that I've shot in a different unit <laughs> that still has an open season. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. Are you, what are your plans for Thanksgiving? Oh, right now it's uh, be here. Um, I have a late season cow tag uh, around the area and uh, Jaden will be probably whitetail hunting. Basically we're still hunting. I think this hunting season is a really long one and it's just a marathon at this point, which makes me a very lucky woman. Nice. (laughs) Excellent. Well, this is our fourth episode in the Monteith Shop series and our guest today is Rhiannon Jacobek. Hi, Rhiannon. Hi. Uh, Thanks for Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We are excited to talk to you and to delve in some, into some of the research you're doing. Um, where are you? What are your plans for Thanksgiving? Um, well, so I'm in, in Laramie, Wyoming, and my plans for Thanksgiving are, um, uh, so I'm kind of wrapping up my graduate work right now or trying to, uh, to the best of my abilities. And so uh, I think this Thanksgiving will be a little more um, working than maybe I would like it to be, but that's kind of just, that's okay. Um, but I'll probably be hanging out in, in Laramie and hopefully eating some delicious game meat that, uh, someone has shot. I'm not sure if it will be me. Uh, I tried to go hunting last or, you know, earlier this season and, um, got a little skunked, but that's okay. We'll do, (laughs) we'll get them next year. So yeah, that happens. (laughs) what happened to me last year (laughs) I'm hoping it doesn't happen to me this year but I mean we're not really off to a great start yet so we'll see (laughs) um while we're while we're on the topic what's your background as a hunter angler so I started hunting well I guess as to back up a little bit more um I spent a lot of my high school years and then a lot of my um 
first in my 20s in as a vegetarian. Um, so I uh, was very opposed to hunting, actually. It was kind of brought up in a household that just didn't under, like didn't know a lot about hunting. So I was just I had no exposure to it, basically. Um, but then I started to work in, in wildlife and I realized that hunting was such an integral part of, of wildlife management and then in the United States. And so I thought I should probably try to figure out what what it was all about. And so I went hunting for the first time last year and I went pronghorn hunting with a, a few pretty incredible women in my lab and they, you know, showed me how to hunt how and it was it was a pronghorn hunt uh, near near Alcova, which is near kind of near Casper, Wyoming. Um, so I got to be out in the sage, which I love. Um, and pronghorn are just such a cool and weird critter. And it was just great to be able to, you know, learn from these two really incredible people and then actually experience hunting for the first time. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so that was kind of my first, my first introduction to it. And um, I kind of had some like mixed feelings after it or mixed is maybe not the right word, but um, complicated feelings. Like I was really grateful for the opportunity to hunt and I was really thankful to have meat throughout the remainder of the year. But, um, you know, I think a lot of us end up having to grapple with our feelings of guilt or, you know, whatever those emotions are. Um, but I think I was, you know, in a spot this year where I wanted to go back and hunt again. But yeah, just didn't, didn't quite get that uh <laughs> a good shot lined up this year. But uh, yeah, so that's kind of where, where I started and how I got here. It's never quite a black and white feeling, is it? I think, uh, I mean, it's part of the shortfall of hunting is that communicating everything that hunting and taking a life is, is damn near impossible. We can get close with words, but um, I think there's some parts of it that are just undescribable until you've been there. And it's hard to grapple with that. So I, I really, I've been there often. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the other thing to convey too is that that grappling doesn't go away or at least it hasn't for me yet. Um I think it's something that I I mean I think you you learn how to process it and have more experience with um like literally processing it, right? So <laughs> so I think that uh and by processing that in that sense I mean the meat itself. Um and so it just it it becomes um, a more familiar process, but I don't think it ever goes away completely. And I know this year for me in particular on the antelope hut that I just went on, I was with a friend who harvested an antelope and had the opportunity to help her, um, uh, quarter it and carry it out. And I feel like having that reminder of moving from, um, hunter to harvester and, and, and touching the meat. I'm just curious if that will impact uh, my process when and if I do get an opportunity to harvest an animal myself. Yeah, does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I also, I don't think it, the grappling and, and these complicated feelings, I don't think they, they should go away. Like, no. it's mm -hmm. very, like you took a life. Mm -hmm. um, I hope it never gets to the point where it's just blase and like, oh, yep, did that thing. Mm -hmm. um, I've always said that if I hit there, I'd stop hunting. Mm hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. Ooh, I like I like this is already an interesting conversation. This is <laughs> I'm, I'm in. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, 
Yeah. I feel like every once in a while we get those guests, which Rhian and you clearly are, who who are like, let's go deep early. Let's just do it. <laughs> Should we just keep talking about all the complicated feelings with hunting? Um, I guess like uh, so. To to keep going with this a little bit, um, I kind of struggled like after right after I pulled the trigger um, on the first yeah the first animal that I was hunting and I you know, I thought that I would have all of these emotions. I'm a pretty emotional person. Generally, I'm like very excitable. If I see something really engaging, I'm there. Like I just have all of these emotions a lot of the time. And then I thought that with take, with doing something as, um, as serious as taking a life, I thought that I would have all of these emotional reactions. And I just, I had nothing. My, uh, at first it was just like, okay, have to get to this animal. Like the the sound of the bullet or of the gun shooting was like ringing in my ears because I wasn't wearing ear protection or anything like that. Um, and, and it was just like the whole world just, just stopped, um, which it, I've never had an experience that mimics that or even, even comes close to like basically stopping the entire world in all of your existence yeah. and then like being funneled into this single goal of go get to that animal. I imagine it's probably something that it it's a leftover for lack of a better way to put it like the lizard brain it's the mm-hmm. it's the predator um you know that is solely based around you know the accomplishment of procuring food um or the goal of you know whether it's shooting an antelope or a deer or an elk um and I know exactly you know it's that feeling of like literally nothing else in the world matters except for that moment in that time. Like it does totally disappear. And I've always sort of thought or, or maybe projected that, that perhaps like in the midst of a chase or, or, you know, a stock, a predator that is four-legged and not two-legged likely goes through the same, or maybe not even like a shark would go through the same kind of emptying of everything else and it's total focus. Um, and that's part of that is also the respect to your prey. And I wouldn't call it respect as in like anthropomorphizing it, but it's more just like um, it's you and it and that's it. I also think I, I responded similarly uh, with my first two harvests, especially. And I almost feel like I didn't know which emotion to pick um, <clears throat> in that moment. It was just, it wasn't overwhelming in a sense that I was overwhelmed by emotion uh, because, yeah, I feel like I just zeroed in. I get to that animal um, and and do what I needed to do from there. But I, I almost didn't. Yeah, I, there was just too many emotions. I didn't know which one to surface. <laughs> um, and I remember particularly with my first bear harvest, which was a totally unique experience. The person I was with like actually looked at me and put their um, hand on my shoulder and said, are you happy? Um, because I was not exhibiting any emotion at all. And I told them to ask me tomorrow because <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> sure. <laughs> but yeah, it's an interesting and everybody responds differently too, which I think is, is, is fascinating to, to hear about. Yeah. And I think it was also, uh, especially cause it was my first, my first attempt at hunting. I had someone who was right there next to me who was very encouraging and like didn't you know didn't push me in any way I mean encourage but not 
um, pressured, I guess. And then just, I guess, being able to still have that reaction and whatever that reaction was of just like numbness of focus of, of whatever that was. And just having that person that was right next to you. And um, especially it being this person that I think is just like really, really incredible was just, I, I don't know. I think one of the most remarkable uh, experiences that I've ever had. Jess, do you remember your first service? I'm sure you do. Jess, oh boy, can you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me rephrase that question. Jess, what was the story of your first harvest? Uh, mine was actually a mule deer um, with a bow. And maybe eight, nine years ago now. Um, and I'd been practicing with a bow for about a year and a half. I'd gotten it a little bit too close to hunting season that first year to feel like very comfortable with it. And so I practiced with it and I'd gone out after turkeys in the spring, but hadn't had any luck, uh, which side note, I still have not had any luck with turkeys nine years later. Turkeys are so elusive. (laughs) Um, But I was out shooting a little bit longer range in this little public land parcel, um, sort of just outside of town and looked up in July and saw a really nice uh, three by four mule deer. And I was out there with uh, my mentor at the time and um, turned to him and I said, I, that's a really beautiful deer. I want to come back and I want to hunt him and proceeded to watch him for the next two and a half, three months. Um, and then came back on an evening hunt and went up there. I was with my mentor, but he was like kind of down around behind the hill. And I just, it was about a two and a half hour stock on elbows and hands and knees and got to a point and he was with three other bucks. There was a much larger four point with him. And, um, I kept telling myself like, like, don't be an idiot. Don't be picky. If you have a legal shot on any of these bucks, you should take it that you feel good about. Like I was trying to be like, don't be picky about your deer. And, um, I like sat there, it was like maybe an hour, like observing them feeding around in this area. And they were all right at like 35 yards, which is, was at that time too far for my comfort zone. I told myself I'd make a 30 yard shot or less. And they just sat there right at that range, right outside of range. And, um, he ended up being the only one that stepped past that 30 yard thing. And I drew back the other three deer with him saw and bolted and he just stayed and stared broadside. And I had this, I have a very vivid memory of having this thought of like, Oh my God, like, I guess I have to shoot him now. Hmm. And like being kind of unsure about it and then just like committing to it and feeling like that was a really good shot. Um, And he was the only one I shot him at 28 yards he stopped and stood broadside while every other deer in the area ran away. I like, it, it was such a confluence of luck and bizarre and just right deer. And it was that three by four. And I have photos of him July through August until the day that I shot him. Um, and it was just, it changed me like hugely changed me. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he stuck with me. I mean, he's, he is the reason I got a job at Wyoming wildlife federation. He's the reason I kept hunting like that experience, like, was a major catalyst for the rest of my life. That's a beautiful story. Can I, can I ask a question? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so just presumably that was a, as you like knew that animal you were, you know, 
have been tracking it for or him for months. And then presumably you've also had hunts where you didn't know an animal so intimately. How does hunting change for you when you know the animal versus when you just find a great animal and a good shot? Um, you know, I, I have to make a difference with this and that most of the time when I'm hunting mule deer, I know the animal. Um, most of the time. That's not always, but most. Uh, I, I'm lucky to live in a place that has an incredible over-the-counter tag, uh, general t- tag for archery. I have great public land access, so I am afforded this privilege to be able to... I mean, there's there's deer in and around my area that I've now known three, four years, you know, and every year I see pictures of harvested deer. I'm like, oh, I have photos of that one from two, de- two years ago. Um, Kristen Gunther actually last year shot a deer that I have a video from, uh, two months prior to her shooting it. So I am a little bit of a deer nerd. So I would say with deer, um, at this <laughs> point, I just want to pause to, to appreciate the understatement of that. that right there. <laughs> I know, I know it's, and it's, I, there's just a special connection I have to the deer, especially in this area. Um, I just, I'm a mule deer enthusiast and to the nth degree, I guess. And it's always been really personal hunting mule deer. And I, I can't, I don't necessarily know why it's something I've struggled with. Cause like, I don't have that with elk. Like I respect elk and I love them and I love hunting them. Um, but I, I don't have elk that I've seen and I'm like, oh yeah, that's that one from this year or this one. Um, mule deer, I think it's because of their high fidelity to like their home range and their beds and their, their whole schedule throughout the day. I mean, I have bucks pattern where I can be like, well, at 645, he's going to bed here and around 837, he's going to get up and eat a little bit, you know, things like that, where it really is, is like a mule deer specific trait. So they allow you to get personal. Um, I will say I struggled a lot. You know, I've, I'm primarily and predominantly a bow hunter and just this year really started hunting hard with a rifle and took my first ever antelope this year with a rifle but it was also first of the species. And I had a long discussion with Jaden about it because I felt like a separation to this buck that I haven't ever felt uh, when I've shot something with a bow. And it, I think it's just cause I wasn't, you know, in his wheelhouse looking into his, you know, eyes and trying not to let him hear me breathing kind of thing. And it has, you know, I shot him in 150 yards. It's not like I was far. Um, but it felt it was a very different feel, different success, different gratitude that came with it. But it was it did feel less personal to me. Um, and I think that's just me. Like, that's not like everybody should feel that. That's just sort of, I think, how I've processed that. And because of being a bow hunter and being so used to being 30 yards or closer to something, um, using a rifle is really t- I'm I'm struggling with wrapping my brain around it and making sure that I have like appropriate responses and feeling connected to something because I think with a bow I just like am so part of the place and just so in it um it just immediately feels more personal but that's a great question I don't know that I have a real answer for it um yeah that it's for mule deer the one thing I can say for mule deer for one reason or another it is always personal for me and I think it has a lot to do with how easy they are to get to know because they're patternable you know, Jess, I think, so I'm, prim- I'm exclusively a, a rifle hunter. Um, but I, I, I think I can relate to what you're saying. I can only imagine the intimacy that you get with an animal from bow hunting them. 
but I have felt differently um, with animals that I've harvested just depending on the amount of time I'm able to spend with them mm-hmm. before I'm presented with a shot. Um, and I much prefer being able to spend a longer time with them. Um, yeah, it brings something. It sounds weird to be like, I want to get to know what I'm going to shoot and hunt. But but it feels more respectful for to me in a, in a yeah, maybe a contradictory way. Yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't tell you the why. What I can tell you is that I feel it. <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, I ran in the, the mule deer thing, and and you know, as we have probably all witnessed on the previous podcast we've done, I, deer hold a special place. They are something. They are mule deer are something different for me, and hunting them has always been deeply more personal and deeply more almost like religious of an experience for me (laughs) like yeah I think you're you're definitely not alone in that people and myself included are just drawn to mule deer for for so many reasons and I think like trying to articulate them is really hard um or articulate those reasons I mean is is very hard um someone asked me recently like why deer like what's up with deer why are you so interested in them and I just I don't, I just kind of threw my arms up in the air and I was like, why not deer? Like, just, <laughs> what, what kind of question is that? Um, and That's our next comic. <laughs> it just went on to describe like their beautiful ears and how their ears have like black on the inside of them and their hooves have like little, they're like a little soft on the bottom, but they're still able to live in these really rugged areas. And they're just these really tough animals and they're really smart and we don't, even fully appreciate how intelligent these critters are and and even though we've been studying them for however many you know as as scientists for a handful of centuries but as people for uh thousands of years uh we and they they still baffle us like what a what a cool animal and of course other animals do too but um so there's something here (laughs) i i think there's also something with mule deer where it's like they you know, they're younger than a lot of the other big game species. Um, at least it seems like they've been on the, the timeline a little less than, than a lot of the other big game species. And, and they're really like our immediate, I don't know. And I, I know that's a theory, but like, there's something about like watching an animal have to adapt, especially a very specific animal, you know, they're, they're specialists in my mind. They're not, they're not, a, they're not, in the same league as I would put like crows and, and coyotes. And, you know, while we do see town deer, I wouldn't ever argue that town deer are doing well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think they're specialists and they're, they're kind of that canary in the coal mine. They're a little bit of that keystone species. They're, they're an immediate reminder to our failings as humanity and a lot of things. And I, I always am looking at that when I'm seeing a deer, I think. Interesting. Um, I'm going to, since the conversation, no, it's fabulous. Um, and since the conversation is, uh, centering around deer, I want to go ahead and, um, bring it around to the Rose Petal Project. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Rhiannon? Yeah, I'm super excited to talk about this project. So with, um, mule deer in particular, they tend to have really high fidelity and philopatry. So fidelity is, is faithfulness. Uh, to an area, to um, a home range, that sort of, to a particular 
pattern of behavior. Um, and then fidelity, or I'm sorry, philopatry, meaning that you tend to establish a home range or tend to be really faithful to right near where you were born. And so mule deer, especially the, the females, will kind of, when, so when they are born, they are exposed to their summer range, especially in these in these migratory herds like we have in, in Wyoming and a lot of different places throughout uh, Western North America. They are born on a summer range. And then that next year after they've done their fall and spring migration, uh, they'll return to that area, but they won't necessarily stay right on top of where their mom gave birth to them. And so they kind of offset a little bit, but they have a a home range that we think um, is kind of slightly overlapping with that uh, their home range that they had when they were um, just born. And then that's like the first petal on a rose. And then as both that mom and then that daughter over time reproduce and successfully are able to raise offspring, um, their home ranges kind of slightly overlap and arrange themselves so they look like the like the petals on a row on the rose basically um and this is something this is a concept that we're exploring in mule deer uh it's been looked at quite extensively in white-tailed deer um in particular from a like a nuisance uh wildlife standpoint uh so if you go into an area and you try to remove uh just a handful of, of white-tailed deer um they're not, their family structures are, are so strong that they're not necessarily like you, that they're still going to be deer in that area. So but you're if, saying kind of that they'll like backfill, like you may yeah. remove, like if you want to get, if it's a nuisance population of whitetail and you only take out like a quarter of them, they're just going to backfill it. You're not going to have any less deer or any less of a problem. So it's almost like if you, if they're in this instance of whitetail and it being a nuisance and being really bad, you'd have to wipe out a population if you truly wanted to. And that's like the whole rows rather than just a couple of petals. Yeah, and it, 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 that's exactly right. And it, so it's not necessarily that you have to wipe out the entire population, but <laughs> this is pretty, mm -hmm. but like a family group. Yeah, you need yeah, to be, yeah. here's the, you got to remove that entire rose, which, you know, maybe is uh, three individuals is maybe, you know, a, like a 10-ish individuals. Um, so, so that the rose petal, hypothesis comes from the white-tailed deer literature from more of a like how do we reduce these deer populations but when we apply it to mule deer um it's kind of it's kind of the inverse but the the same theory of of how animals set up their home ranges and um their family groups and that sort of thing but you just kind of flip the implications of it so basically uh if something happens and you remove a mom, or if you remove a lot of animals from this rose, that rose can be wiped out. And because animals tend to have, or mule deer in particular, have such high fidelity uh, to their to their areas, if you if you remove all of the animals in an area, there aren't going to be like new animals that come and explore and find that new area and occupy that new area for quite a long time. So the things that we end up doing on a landscape, if we end up removing animals, can have ramifications on that landscape for for generations of, of mule deer because they aren't going to uh, return to that area right away. Is this, are you guys looking at, you know, and I think I talked about this with uh, Ellen in our, when she's talking about her surfing the green wave research, 
And I, I think I posed this question to Ellen of like, are there places, and I was specifically referencing Wyoming, but across, you know, I would just say, are there places, question mark, <laughs> for anything in the world where there's like these great habitats <clears throat> that we're not seeing for sake of this conversation, populations of mule deer using. Um, and like, are there these like sort of blank pockets on the landscapes? And and I pose it to her and like, we inadvertently messed up a migration or we put up a barrier or some something happened that um, wiped out that resonant herd. And, um, and are you guys looking at that in this rose petal hypothesis is like a, a thought of, here's how that could have happened if it did and and is there any hope that we'll ever see something there again <laughs> um yeah i think i'm going to have a not terribly satisfying answer in the sense that those pockets like they probably exist but our ability to identify them as scientists and be like this was a pocket that should be suitable for mule deer and there mm -hmm. aren't here i think that's th there's just a lot of jumps to be able to get there um and admittedly that was the project that I had kind of started on as a master's student we went out and collected fecal samples and we were um, basically going to be looking at relatedness across a landscape and try to be able to be like oh yeah here's where there are deer here's where there aren't deer and uh, let's try to test this <laughs> hypothesis and, and like really um, in, in a really thorough way uh, and then uh, turns out it's Wyoming's pretty big uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it was really hard. Um, and so, of course, there there have been studies where people have gone out and done similar things and um, have been able to say, like, okay, yeah, like the rose petal hypothesis for deer, for mule deer, um, probably does hold true. There is is some empirical support for that. But then going, being able to say, like, but here are pockets on the landscape where there were deer and there aren't deer anymore. Um is something that we have not yet been able to do. Um, one way I think that could be pretty interesting to look at this is to just talk to people who have been on these landscapes for generations and be able to be like, where where did you used to see deer? And then go and see if there are deer there now. Um, that could be a, a good way to do that. But we just, um, we haven't gotten there yet, but I think that's something that um, would be really interesting to get to eventually. That would oh, be a super that. fun Hunter Citizen Science project. Yeah. yeah. Um, we love to talk about where we've seen deer and where we don't see them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I really want to get that going. It's just been one of those, like, how, how to get it going. Well, yeah. so maybe it, we should just do it after this, I guess. And uh, <laughs> if there's any listeners out there who are like, oh, this is something <laughs> about too. Please contact me. I would love to get this going. Um, just not entirely sure how, how to get that going. But um, I think really... You know, people who are out on these landscapes, whether you're hunting or you're ranching or you just hike a bunch, like however you're out on these landscapes, you know these areas. And as scientists, we know areas too, just in, in kind of different ways. And so I think being able to to draw from both of our experiences, because they are they are both valid ways of of knowing about the world. I think being able to to really combine those things is something that um, would be really interesting. And there there's a lot of of work to be done there. I so, love this idea. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. You uh, Talking about, um, oh, I'm going to forget. What is it? It's fidelity. And what's the other word? Philopatry. The philopatry. Okay. P-H-I-L-O. If that Okay. That, that helps. helps. Yep. Yeah. Um, 
talking about that with with mule deer and kind of their their uh, commitment to the same migration path every year. Are there are there instances of rogue deer finding their own path and blazing their own trail? And what does that look like? Oh, yes, these punk are rock deer. Yeah. Punk rock deer. Yeah. <laughs> Jess, have you seen my talks? What is this? Uh, <laughs> um, I guess the yeah, I gave a a talk at a conference one time and um I had a picture of a deer and I like drew um like punk rock stuff on it nice. I guess I gave it a mohawk and um rebel did, did he have yeah. like the uh the the uh the snarl what Billy Idol snarl uh yeah. <laughs> no it was a uh, I no I should have added that um <laughs> oh, gosh. I admit I was never terribly into punk I was more of a of a grunge or emo kid myself never never quite got into punk so I was, I was like a, a really 90s child there. yeah <laughs> so it's a, you know kind of kind of grasping for the at straws for the the punk things but yeah there are totally some punk rock deer out there which is I think really cool because like we have all of these expectations of what deer should be doing we're like oh yeah they're super faithful they have this really high fidel or um they have really high filipatry this is what they should be doing case closed but then um we're able to see that there are these deer that totally do the exact opposite, or I shouldn't say the exact opposite, but almost the exact opposite of, of what we expect them to do. Um, so um, in part of our, our research, we follow deer from the moment they are born until they die. Um, like, you know, like for as long as we can, basically. Um, and then we also have their mom collared and we've been following her for a while usually so we have this like really expansive data set and so that's the only reason that we're able to kind of understand like the full context for when these punk rock deer do something that's that's really weird um so kind of what we would expect is for mule deer to establish their their winter or their sorry their their summer range take their same migration path uh, between their summer and their winter range and then keep their same winter range as well. Basically just travel between those those areas throughout their entire lives. But what we've been seeing with a handful of deer is that they they kind of stay anchored on their, their summer range. So wherever they were first exposed to early on in life. But then they'll establish sometimes a, a drastically different migratory route and then a very new winter range and so um in lots of cases these animals are are traveling like i don't know um maybe 40 to 50 percent longer migration routes um they're in you know the winter ranges kind of look pretty similar in that they're all sagebrushy lower elevation things but they're it's not like you just kind of were like oh i'm just gonna take this other route kind of over here and see what's over here um they have us like found entirely new pockets of a landscape and their migration routes are, are very different to get them to that point. But also um, once they establish or once they like discover that new migration route and that um, that new winter range, that's what they do for the remainder of, of their lives. So once you start to be a rogue deer, you are a rogue deer for the remainder of your life. So, so far as we can tell, and this is an ongoing study, so maybe this will change as we get more information over 
the next handful of years, but that's what we've been seeing so far. And this really speaks to that first year of life as being a really, really crucial time in an animal's life for establishing the behaviors that they will use later on in life. So, because it, it, it is during this first year of life that they try out a new migration route. Um, wow. Cause they, wow. you know, they've like, they've spent until they are one year old with their mom. So like their mom showed them a migration route and you're like, Hey, here's, here's the way that I go. Let's go this way. And then it's almost like in that second year or like they, when they are one year old. So between when they are one and two, that's when they will try kind of a new, a new thing. And then they, from what we can tell so far, once they try that new thing, they, they stick with that. And I think there's a lot of interesting questions with that. Like why, why did they um, try a new thing? Why did they stick with it? Or was it just like a bad winter and they got turned around and then they were just like, Oh, I guess this is the way I go now. Um, Did they just realize that maybe their mom's route wasn't great or her winter range wasn't great. And so they picked a new route uh, so that they could you know, find, find a better way of living. And, and I think those are really cool questions that are uh, down the line, but are, are kind of motivating me to keep, uh, you know, staying curious on, on this topic. What kind of data gathering uh, instruments do you use to get that kind of answer? Like, I know you have GPS collars on these deer, but are you looking at like, say for posing this question, like, did mom just pick not a great winter range? Are you out there analyzing like the forage on the winter range and doing these transects and things like that? Or, um, I mean, it's just, this is a huge like question to wrestle with. And it feels like there's so many ways that you could, uh, that you could pose it. I think one of the, one of the cool things about being an ecologist right now is just the huge wealth of information and, um, technology that is available right now. So, a lot of what we can do is through for assessing like habitat is through remote sensing. So you can get information on snow depth, you can get information on temperature and um, types of habitat and rates of um, you know green up or vegetation growing across a landscape. You can get all of these sorts of information from you know from your computer, <laughs> which is great um, and is just a testament to how um, important it is to just have well well funded scientific agencies in in the world because these are agencies that are collecting these data. Like the people that are collecting snowfall data um, maybe didn't think that they would end up using or that that some of this data would be used to, to look at mule deer winter ranges. But here we are. So um, it's really great to just you know, have generally well-funded science. Um, but a lot of what we do is um, is, is looking at, at remote sensing, but also um, one of the things that uh, Taylor Lashar has been working on, and so she runs the Wyoming Range Mule Deer Project, and she is the one that's out there on the ground, like looking at the sagebrush, doing the vegetation surveys throughout the year, like seeing what is out there. So um, I guess... I should say that we as a lab, like we do it. I, I do not do it. Taylor's the one that like knows these landscapes way better. Um, yeah. So I have a couple of follow-up questions about the punk rock deer. Um, are they mostly bucks or is it a good mix of bucks and doe? And and what percentage of the, the rose petal population does it seem to be? I will start by saying that we have uh, quite a low sample size, unfortunately, uh, just because 
the the ecology of mule deer is such that they have really low fawn survival like generally that's something that we that we kind of expect um and you know they have things built in through from evolution that kind of fight against that or like allow them to work within that framework um things like them having two fawns each year most mule deer have two fawns each year throughout the remainder or throughout their entire lives um but you know they still have really low adult or sorry, really low uh, fawn survival. Um, so uh, we kind of have ecology working against us a little bit, but then also we had a handful of really rough winters right back to back, um, unfortunately timed with when I started graduate school and I really needed fawns to be alive. So um, like the first year that I started graduate school, we had um, 50 fawns collared and then between just like ecology and low fawn survival for all of those reasons. And in the harsh winter, we had all of the fawns that we were studying die. Oh, um, so it was just like, oh, that's gosh. rough. Yeah, you know, so, um, so you can imagine like how hard it is to get at these questions, not because they're necessarily like hard conceptually and, you know, the, the methodological tools are there, but when you work with wild populations, you're at you know, the, uh, the discretion of the deer populations in nature, um, which unfortunately we <laughs> cannot control. So um, yeah, so our sample size, that is a long way of saying we have a lower sample size than we were hoping to have right now, but we are um, accumulating information, which is uh, cool and encouraging. Uh, so right now we've got um, like 12 mother-daughter pairs that are uh that we after this year so starting like in 2021 we'll be able to really look into whether they are learning their migratory routes from from their moms so just as like a caveat we are talking about a really small sample size here and that's not necessarily going to be representative of um the population we'll we'll know more in in a handful of years but the things that are are emerging so far um, is that the animals that tend to uh, be rogue and do their own thing are infrequent within our sample so far. Um, it's only been a handful of animals. But then, uh, and then also before I talk about this other thing, um, uh, we have not collared as many, or we haven't been following male offspring for as long and so we do have a handful of them collared but they don't they haven't seemed to be super rogue um they kind of do what we would expect them to do but also they have stayed kind of close to where they were born which is not really what we would expect evolutionarily because they should want to disperse and leave an area to reduce inbreeding but i think that's a function of us not yet having followed them to the point in their life when they are dispersing. I think it's just still a little, a little too early to tell, which is um, maybe a little bit unsatisfying as of an answer right now, but I think we'll have some interesting things. I think uh, it's a fascinating future like discovery to have though. Like I'm really excited to see where this research goes, um, especially around, around like, you know, is is it is it does and is it buck and does that are these punk rock punk rock deer? Is it mostly does? Are they? You know, I would assume that a doe 
being the one that, you know, sort of is the punk rock deer going out is then creating a new rose as opposed to like a buck that is a punk rock deer. He kind of just goes and is like, well, this is cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know? like, um, and, and he has less of an ability to establish a new rose, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, there's a lot of like, I'm just, I'm really excited to see where this research grows. I think there's a lot of opportunity here and, you know, uh, this, this high fidelity of mule deer and this question that, you know, is it, is it learned, you know, and how is it learned and, and how stringently is it learned, um, as opposed to like, you know, what we know with like our avian friends where it's just kind of the switch flips and now you're going south, um, I think there's a lot more deliberation there and it's, it's a testament to the mule deer thought process. When I, I'm so happy that you, you brought up birds. So I right now live with an ornithologist and, you know, I'm a mammologist. So um, he studies birds and I like to study mammals. And I think, you know, there's always a, always a healthy rivalry between people who study birds and people who study mammals. And I like to, I don't know, it's kind of fun to give bird people a little bit of crap. But when you look at like migration stuff, uh, bird, the bird literature is so far advanced, um, and which is very helpful as, as a person who is looking into, into these topics because I can look at the bird literature and be like, oh, yeah, there are a lot of birds that have um, genetically programmed uh, cues for how, how they migrate and when they migrate and that sort of thing. But then also, wait, there's these weird, really long-lived birds that don't, it's not genetic. It is learned like, Oh, what, what is similar between mule deer and some stork that, sorry. <laughs> so like condescending with that. <laughs> <laughs> birds are cool. Birds are really cool. Sorry. That's not, that's not what I meant to say. I, it's more of just my ignorance about knowing what the species name of the stork was. Um, but, <laughs> like, what, like what is it that's similar about deer and these long lived birds and how can we apply that information that's already been looked at in these other species to a species that's so different like mule deer um and i think one of the interesting things that um kind of uh that joins them is that there's like really prolonged parental care and so mule deer like some of these longer lived birds like maybe like whooping cranes and sandhill cranes that also have migration that tends to be more learned over something that's like genetically programmed um they, they have really long periods of parental care um, throughout an entire year. And so they have just all of that opportunity to be able to um, to learn their migrations. So, yeah, anyway, that's a that's very much an aside. But uh, I think as as much as I like to kind of give bird people crap, they've really got it together. And I think there's <laughs> really cool stuff happening in the bird world that we as, those of us that uh, look at ungulates can really be looking to them. <laughs> it's a nice I, I think <laughs> mule deer would benefit from uh, a fan base like the birds have. Oh, for uh, sure. You know, they don't have that yet. And and some of that is is that, that they're only found in some states and some countries and not everywhere. Uh, birds are pretty universal in that they are, is at least some species of birds everywhere, but you know, mule deer, there's some species of deer in most places, but I just feel like mule deer are a weird thing unto themselves. Um, but I do, I do think that they, 
the best thing that could happen is to inspire a fanaticism of questions about mule deer. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I'm going to wildly speculate here, which is one of my favorite things to do. But I think like with mule deer, especially for those of us that live in the Western US, like we see them a lot. Like we see them along the roads. We have to swerve you know, to not hit them. Uh, they're in our gardens. They are where we recreate. We kind of like sometimes just tune them out um, just because they are so common. But this is an incredible animal. Like if you see an animal and you're just driving along this a side of a highway and you see a, a deer there, like what what happened in that deer's life to get it to that exact moment? Like did it travel a hundred miles between its summer and its winter range? And like, does it teach that information to its offspring like how cool is this but they're they're such common critters that I think that we don't lend like we don't give them the same level of like fanaticism that we would maybe give other critters just because they because they are so common but I hope everybody like next time you see a deer I hope you just stop and look at them and you're like wow how many mountain ranges did you climb over in the past like year what were what were you doing in this past year because they're so incredible and impressive Speaking of wild speculations, Rhiannon, you know, I think people are like, if you could leave one footprint on this earth, what is it? And I think for me, it's that when hunters wax poetic about big bucks <laughs> and talk about big mule deer and big this, I would love the conversation to be kind of in how you said, when we look at a big buck, what do those antlers represent? It's not a big buck. It's not an ego thing. But what they represent is an incredibly healthy doe who had a likely healthy home range, whether it was migratory or not, they had ability to get to places, a connected habitat, it had a healthy mom, and it resulted in a like large, big racked mule deer that somebody likes to put on their wall and talk about, you know, uh, tell a story around. And and I just I want this, I want the hunting public to switch their care of big antlers from an egotistical way and into a reverence of health of habitat and uh, a reverence of species and of intelligence. And, and I would just, I would love to see that switch happen um, for mule deer, all, all species. Yes. Particularly for mule deer, because I'm biased, but <laughs> that, that, that big racked mule deer that we see and whether it's the head of different mule deer organizations or when you go to a banquet and every picture is a big buck in it, I'm effing sick of it. I would love to start seeing some fat does and some healthy habitat in some art and photography and uh, sort of caricature around the mule deer. Gosh, uh, this is a thing that I, it, I think about a lot and I'm not really sure how to approach. So I'm happy that we're talking about this and I hope I leave this with some, some ideas. Um, but like, it seems, you know, with the focusing on a big buck, it, it's a thing, it's a single thing that you can focus on. Um, mm -hmm. where I'm like focusing on a more holistic approach. That's like, oh my gosh, you have to figure out some way to conserve hundreds of miles of migration corridor and summer and winter ranges and make sure that there's connectivity throughout all of those things and then like they're all healthy how, how do you do that and so like what do you think 
what could, it's going to take a lot of activation energy to move from like a singular focus to this more holistic approach. So what do you think, what can, what can we do to like move it in that way? I feel like if we knew that we'd have an answer for climate change. (laughs) You know, I can say it's an easy thing to blame it. You know, big bucks come from killing all the coyotes and good genetics, like boom, easy. It's something I can go out and kill a bunch of coyotes and then worry about genetics rather than talking about big bucks come from, and here's the novel that I have to write behind it. Um, it, I think it's really coming with this thing of like, maybe we stop talking about big deer altogether and we start talking about like big ranges. (laughs) But I also think it's not like this, this, uh, narrow thinking in this lack of holistic perspective is not restricted to hunting. Right. I think it's, it's cultural and it touches, um, yeah, it touches everything that we think about. And so I think the change that needs to happen, um, needs to be much deeper. Well, I was just looking for, you know, like if I had to change one thing, so I was focusing on hunting, but I guess, you know, needs to expand out into the whole cultural argument. We can do it. I think we've got women here that can do it. (laughs) No, I think that's a really great, uh, I I don't know that I have an answer for that, Rhiannon. I think, uh, I, when we start doing that and, and, and I guess my argument would be is that we have a very siloed culture. We, we like to focus on things and keep them separate from other things, which is not an ecological way to think. Um, and, and I think it's why science is so at odds so often with politics because politics likes to fix one problem and one problem only. And, and rather than like looking at the bigger picture and, and where the gaps are and, and things like that. So, so looking at this rose petal hypothesis, uh, or, you know, uh, in the rose petal project and what you guys are doing is you are connecting this, uh, it's, it's siloed in that you're looking at one thing and one problem and one question, but it is a much larger implement implication, um, whether you look into the politics of how we handle migration to how we protect it, um, to how far we can push it before we lose it. Um, it's, it's a, it's a really tenuous, you know, gray line we walk but uh i think the the answer there is that that we have to figure out how to keep speaking in ecology terms and rather than the siloed uh black and white nothing's connected and to build on that yeah i i agree completely and to build on that um i uh previous podcast we were talking about the need to complexify the stories we tell um and, and I think that applies here too. I think the way that we start that conversation is by telling more complex stories. Um, and the research you're doing that definitely aids in building those stories. But um, don't tell it above a fifth grade reading level because otherwise no one else will understand it. I feel like that's the daily dose of cynicism. Oh, Jess. <laughs> no, no, it's really like it's a communications thing where like, yeah. you know, no one's experts at everything. And that's it. Like, like we see deer everywhere. Um, the three of us on this podcast love them. We've read a lot about them. We know a lot about them. But, but I would say like the average human that comes in contact with mule deer might respect them, might love them, might hate them, who knows, but they don't know more about them. And they don't have to, because you don't have to be an expert on everything. That being said, um, you know, if we're communicating in terms that are sort of for the layman, and I mean, they say a fifth grade reading level, and that's not like an insult. It's more just like, 
nobody can be an expert on everything. So why don't we talk in terms that everyone can understand, including a fifth grader? And we'll probably get further along in how we like make decisions and in our frustrations with whether our politicians are uh, using the most current science or not, if we make it understandable and engaging. And, and I mean, really, that's the scary part of science is that you, and, and I would argue that's actually the role of the, you know, nonprofit is, is the scientists are there to do the work and to do the academia and to do the nuanced terms. And hopefully then the NGOs or, or the people in between the policy and the science were the translators. Um, and we have to get it right. And we have to, we have to get it right and get it right often. <laughs> um, so, I don't know. It's a little wormhole, but like, that's, it's, you know, it's, it's why I think we speak in terms of like, it's easier to say, save the big bucks of the Wyoming range rather than being like, okay, so here's the habitat that we need to work on. Uh, one of the other parts of my graduate degree is to be looking at how we as scientists can better be communicating in particular about mule deer, but hopefully just how can we, you know, talk like as scientists communicate better with uh, the people that are members of the public that are super important for making sure that uh, wildlife management is is done. Um, mm -hmm. And so one of the, I'm in like the middle of writing this manuscript, so I'm just so excited that we are talking about this. <laughs> all of this is like stuff that I've just been like, has been just all that I've been thinking about for the past few weeks. So this is um, very exciting. I'm like just doing all the fans over here. But um, one of the things that I'm more and more appreciating, and especially through being able to like interview people, and I went out and interviewed stakeholders across Wyoming. And one of the one of the things that kind of emerged from that is that all like the stakeholders who are really involved in mule deer management in Wyoming all agree that something is not great with mule deer right now. There are things that are affecting mule deer populations and that is not good. But the people differ on what they believe to be the primary issues that are affecting mule deer um, the most. And individual experience and values play a huge, a huge role in that, um, in, in determining those divergences uh, across stakeholders. And I think we as scientists have been talking as if we were talking to one, like to a monolith of a public. And instead we could be taking this time to be like, oh, how, how can we communicate ecological complexity and nuance in a way that's like, not overwhelming. Y'all don't need to know like the specific methods that we used. Like I don't like that's the not interesting stuff. Um, but you, we we as scientists could do a lot to be communicating more of this complexity and and representing more of the ecological reality and how and how messy ecology is and that it's not just one thing at, at a time. It's all of these things all of the time. And so my my hope is that we can move towards this like more holistic form of communication. And I think it's gonna take a while and it's hard. It changes, the, it means that we have to change the way that we talk. It's not necessarily just going out and talking at people, which I think as scientists <laughs> we like to do because like all of us are kind of awkward and like we don't really wanna talk to people. Like that's why we got into wildlife ecology is so that we could just <laughs> go and never see another person. So, you know, it means that we have to talk to people and actually listen to them. And that's the other thing is as scientists, we're like, oh no, we know this stuff. And we do <laughs> like scientists are experts. We are trained in these things. However, people on landscapes also know those landscapes. And so there's a lot of 
it requires that we change the way that we are talking with people and the formats and the things that we're seeing. But I'm really, really hopeful that in the not terribly distant future, we can move towards this more holistic understanding and, and conversation about all of these different things that are affecting mule deer. Let's pause really quickly to take a break to hear from our sponsor. Uh, but when we get back, I really want to dig in uh, to what you just said. We'll be right back. Howdy, Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. Okay, welcome back. Uh, Jess, you you had something to add to dig into where we left off. I think it's really hopeful um, that, that we're, we're at the point now where everybody is scrambling to try and figure out how to communicate to everyone else. And we're, and we're, we're learning that we're not a monolith. We're learning that this, um, I mean, gosh, darn it. We're diverse. <laughs> As is everything. And, and where, where our political stances are to our experiences, to our, um, you know, biases and all of that, like it, it is reflected in how we absorb information and how we process it and what we see you know, affects that. I, I spoke on an earlier podcast also about the anecdotal evidence of like, you know, when you're talking about something that a population does versus something that an individual does and, um, you know, sort of, sort of augmenting the anecdotal evidence of like, well, I've seen deer, you know, in the middle of town or in, in subdivisions, therefore development doesn't affect them. Um, you know, th- that kind of evidence where you have to like validate it because yes, there are deer there. You also have to um, then draw the picture a little larger than just that one um, one family group or that one, one individual. Uh, but looking at this as like you know these diverse stakeholders that are looking at mule deer and 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 uh, looking at how we conserve them. You know, right now the state of Wyoming is wrestling with mule deer in a big way, whether it is on chronic wasting disease and how we deal with that all the way to migrations and how we protect these migrations without uh, damaging our state's uh, number one uh, economic revenue in oil and gas and natural resources. Um, And there's a lot of like opportunity here for listening to each other. Um, I always am left though with that like burning feeling of like, we are all going to have to give and we're all going to have to give things we don't want to. Um, and hopefully if we do that, the meal deer doesn't have to give at all, <laughs> but we'll see. I think one of the most encouraging things about doing um, this project that I was just talking about is to realize that everyone comes from the shared standpoint. Like we don't have to agree that meal deer matter or sorry, mm-hmm. like we don't have to con- convince people that mule deer matter. Like we, already all agree in Wyoming at least um and I know less about the rest of the western U.S. or mule deer across their range but I suspect that in many places 
there as well. Like people care about deer. So that's awesome. Like we, we have such a good place to start from and a shared goal, but now we just have to figure out like, okay, how do we, how do we together get to that role? And I, I really want to figure out how, how can I, as a scientist help us to, to get there? Like, what is the best way for me to plug in? Um, please let me know if you, if you uh, figure that out, but well, I'm curious with the research that you're doing on diverse stakeholders, like what does that research look like? Oh, talking to people. So much talking to people, which is great. Like I cold emailed almost 40 people um, that I had never met before or cold call them, which is even scarier um, to say, hello, person that lives in Cody, Wyoming, or a uh, person that lives in Dubois. Uh I'm a graduate student at the University of Wyoming. Can I please come to your house and talk to you? Of course, I was talking to them before COVID. Um, but uh, people were so like so willing to chat with me. It was incredible. Um, so these complete strangers welcomed me into their home or into their took time out of their work day or you know just made space for me to come in and chat with them and hear about. Um, how they are thinking about mule deer. And so with part of this, this research, we ask them to fill out this, like this little board. So we give them 24 things that could be affecting mule deer. So this is things like um, predators or vehicle collisions or habitat conditions or hunting, whatever. Um, so just all of these different things that could be affecting mule deer. And then we ask people like, please rank these and pick out the things that you think are most important and most negatively affecting mule deer and the things that you think are not important, the things that you disagree are affecting mule deer. And people would rank those, um, all of those statements, all of those topics. And, you know, some people were like, oh, this is so hard to do. There's so many things going on all at once. Or like, oh, I don't know enough about this. Maybe it's important, but I'm not really entirely sure where to go with this. Or in some instances, people would hold up a single card and they're like, yep, nope, got it this is the thing, or these are the things. Um, so people would do that exercise and then we just chat about it afterwards. And I'd um, ask people like, why, why did you put these, why did you rank all of these concerns in the way that you did? And what experiences do you have that led you to come to these conclusions? Because I think as, as scientists, like we have our ways of coming to things, but of course that's not the only way to come to conclusions. And so we were really interested in trying to figure out like where where do people get their information and, and how can we as scientists kind of work within within that existing framework. It's fascinating. Ooh, I like that. Oh, you should come back to the legislature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all I want. <laughs> um, so, gosh, um, I'm very curious to hear both of your thoughts on this, but one of my, like, my dream is to be able to, as a scientist, be, be present at the legislature and, and not lobby. Lobbyists and nonprofits and advocacy groups have a super, super important role to play, um, but I think scientists... Uh, especially scientists at universities and especially like land grant universities like the University of Wyoming where I am, we could do a lot more to help inform legislation. And what that means is we would have to be like an arbiter of of information. We we could just come in to the legislature and help to give the lay of the land, um, help to summarize and translate 
scientific information. There's a lot of things that we could do there. And then the the harder decisions about values and, and what things to to value and, and how to move policy forward, that's a different process. But I think as scientists, we could be doing a lot more. And so I'm trying to figure out how to do that and particularly how to do that from being a, a researcher at a university. So I'm I'm hoping to get back to the legislature. I'm hoping to do that as soon as I can. Um, just trying to figure out the best way to do it in a way that also like, I think scientists, if, especially if you're coming from a university standpoint, you can maybe have this uh, sense of neutrality, which is weird because scientists aren't, we're, we're not neutral, like uh, ever, you know, like we're human beings and we come with all of our own, our own biases and our interests and our desires. But I think as a whole, scientists are, are viewed as, as pretty neutral and we try to be as neutral as, as we possibly can be. But I think like if we can work within that, within that space of credibility um, and trust to be able to help translate information or just hopefully make provide more information so that we can make fully informed uh, legislative and policy decisions. Um, however we get to that, I, I'm not entirely sure, but that's that's what I'm working towards. That's what I that's my dream. I think it's very possible, you know, the the way that the Wyoming State Legislature works and, and the way that the Wyoming Game and Fish Department interacts with them is Wyoming Game and Fish Department is there as an information yes. uh, tool. So so they cannot lobby for or against things or anything like that, but they are there to answer questions that legislators may have, um, especially during committee meetings. So a legislator may be like, well, you know, how many non-hunters are, or, you know, how many hunters are in Wyoming or how many, whatever tags are here. Or, Is it true that elk don't like cactuses or, you know, things like that. And they can <laughs> ask those questions um, because again, nobody can be an expert in everything. Um, and we have a citizen legislature. And uh, so, you know, the, the, the game and fish is essentially like on retainer there to answer a lot of these questions. But I think there's an opportunity for a group like the Monteith shop that has, you know, you guys have a form of organization amongst yourselves. You have the communication there. You have the sort of functioning system that you're a part of um, to equally position itself as a information uh, vessel that does not necessarily have to lobby or do anything like that, but is there to exactly like you said, like provide, you know, a on, on the ground look to up have update and, and uh, current numbers for things or, or yeah, just to be, be there as, as the expert of the issue to answer any of these questions that they may have. Um, I think it's, I mean, it could be wrong, but I think it's very doable. <laughs> Thank you. That's a very encouraging. I'm hoping so. I'm forging ahead as if that were possible. I'm just trying to figure out <laughs> the best way to make that happen. So that's that's very encouraging. Thank you. I've already. I, I mean, I'm I'm totally guilty of it. I've sent emails when I've had bills, and I've been like, I don't have enough information. I have outright emailed Sam Dwinell and others, been like, Can you guys send me the research that? Uh, talk specifically on this. I can't find it, or I don't know about it, or does it exist? And and that's been incredibly helpful. Good. That's good. That's what we as scientists should be able to do more. Um, I think it it's hard to put those connections in place um, to to make that possible. But I, I don't know how to how to like make that. Uh, 
con- that conduit there happen. But yeah, whatever thoughts you have on that, I'm, I'm very keen to hear. Ooh, I like it. The Artemis Initiative, from scientist to advocate. That's our next program. <laughs> I like it. I want to wind us down, but I also want to ask if there's anything else, Rhiannon, that you would like to talk about before uh, before we do that. Oh, gosh. I'm sure there's so many things. Uh, I hope everyone just loves deer as much as I do. <laughs> oh, I guess one, thing, one quick thing. Um, we are trying pretty hard to be as, as a research group to be communicating with members of the public and with policymakers and um, with people as, as much as, as we possibly can be. And so um, I guess I would just put this out there that if, which is maybe a, a dangerous thing, but if, mm-hmm. if you're interested or uh, if you see an outreach need, or if you just want to like look at the outreach stuff that we've already done, um, please get in contact with us. Uh, we do have a growing uh, outreach program it's called the ungulate compendium and so it's just ungulatecompendium.org and you can go there and look at a bunch of our research and also just like fun information about um about all the critters that we study so there's just a bunch of information on there um there's like coloring pages and i don't just like just a bunch of things um and then also just please reach out to us if you're um curious about learning more about ungulates i'd I'd love to chat with people Jess, do you have any burning, burning questions before we go? Uh, you're going to be shocked because I'm going to say no, actually. Uh, this, I, uh, as is maybe evidenced, has been a ravenous follower of Rhiannon and her work um, with the Rose Petal Project, as well as just anything Montee's Shop and Mule Deer. Um, and, and this was a very good uh, I think discussion around it. So no, I'm just happy that I just got to wax poetic about mule deer for the last <laughs> hour and a half. <laughs> That's wonderful. I'm curious now if it is in fact true that elk don't like cactuses, but <laughs> <laughs> no, that, was, that was entirely off the top of my head. <laughs> it made me laugh. I like it. Um, Rhiannon, thank you so much. This was, I really enjoyed this conversation um, and I appreciate your time. Oh, oh my gosh. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This has been great. Thank you. From all of Artemis to all of you, we sincerely hope you are having a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, We hope you're able to connect with your loved ones in some way, even if you aren't able to see them in person. And we hope your table is graced with wild fish and game, foraged foods and garden vegetables. We are deeply thankful for all of you. And if you would like to learn more about the Monteith Shop, this passionate group, their exciting work, and even support their efforts, please go to ungulatecompendium.org. Also keep up to date on their activities and get exposed to interesting facts about ungulates by connecting with them through social media through their social media handle at monteith.shop. If you have more questions on Rhiannon's research, or if you just want to shoot us an anecdote sharing your uh, poetic waxings about mule deer (laughs) send us an email artemis at nwf.org thanks for joining us this week on the artemis podcast until next week be bold stay curious and get outside Mm -hmm.